0: How to retire early, like really early. What, if anything, the news about the Department of Labor fiduciary rule means to you and why Joe hates target date funds. This is Your Money, Your Wealth. Today on Your Money, Your Wealth, Joe and Big Al talk to the Listen Money Matters podcasts. Andrew about real estate and retiring well before age 65. You know Big Al's got a list for you, and today it's the seven essential retirement rules for anyone over 50. And the fellas answer emails about target date funds, making the most of your pension income, buying mom's house rather than inheriting it, and determining capital gains on the sale of a rental. Oh, and you'll find out why Joe's socks may be creating a conflict of interest. Here are certified financial planner, Joe Anderson, and CPA, Big Al Clopine.
1: Hey, welcome to the show. Lots of things to discuss. Breaking news. I'm going right into this, Alan. Okay, I can't wait. You know, it's funny how a year, I mean, it's shocking how quickly things can change. Yes. And In our industry, the financial services industry, And Friday, I'm not sure if you've heard this, uh, but President Trump wrote another executive order. Okay. and so things and and as you know now the Dow Jones is up 20,000 and everyone's all excited the market is extremely excited because we're going to roll back a lot of regulation apparently right and we've been talking about the DOL fiduciary rule for quite some time since it what past couple of years and it was supposed to come out uh, or come into effect in April <laughs> Correct. April 1st. April 1st. And so what the DOL in the fiduciary rule is, is just a little backdrop, uh, backdrop for you, is a fiduciary means this, is that if you're working with a professional, they're doing what's in your best interest. And most of the industry works on a suitability standard, um, which is that they're selling you a product, which is decent for you, but it may or may not be in your absolute best interest. A lot of times, advisors and brokers might have a fiduciary rule to their company, not necessarily to their clientele. So that creates conflicts of interest. When you are positioning a product or a solution uh, that might compensate that firm or that particular broker or advisor or salesperson or whatever that you want to call the individual, uh, you know, a little bit more compensation versus another solution. Right, and you could probably say, I mean, it's it's not definite conflicts of interest, but there's more likelihood. I You're guess sure, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, that's a good point. I mean, uh, uh, there's a lot of really great advisors all across the spectrum. Absolutely. And there's some bad apples, right, that kind of ruin the bunch. Right. And so what they wanted to do is the DOL stepped in and said, you know what, in retirement plans, uh, we would like everyone that is giving advice or helping individuals in their retirement plan. So an IRA, for instance, individual retirement account or 401k, they have to act as a fiduciary which means is that they have to act in your best interest. And so a lot of these different companies were going haywire. The financial services industry was up in arms. They were suing the DOL saying, what are you doing? You're overstepping your bounds and everything else. But when you look at it, well, I mean, if they're acting as a fiduciary, I think that's a good thing. Right? But then there's arguments saying, well, maybe the consumer that doesn't necessarily have a lot of assets that would still like to get advice, uh, they might not be able to get that advice because these firms wouldn't be able to afford to take them on without any sort of reasonable compensation. So I understand that argument. But at the end of the day, you should be working with someone that has your best interest and it should be in writing.
2: Yeah. To me, Joe, that's it's it's surprising, I think, to a lot of folks when we talk about this, that they, they just assume that, that advisors have to look out for their best interest, and that's actually not how the industry is primarily set up. Now, of course, there's a movement. There's a fee-only movement, which we're part of, where we're fiduciaries, but a lot of the industry is still the old-fashioned way under a suitability standard, as you mentioned. and, and Boy, the uh, the uproar from the industry over this Department of Labor uh, regulation. And, of course, a lot of the industry wanted Donald Trump to get into the office so they could roll it back. And that uh, appears to be exactly what's going on.
1: Right. And uh, so stay tuned. Right. Um, they, they, he Drafted the executive order on Friday. Yeah, what I what I'm
2: not completely clear on it, Joe. But what I read was that it's an executive order, and, and it's it's not like cast in stone. It's more of a this is his thoughts, the, and we got to relook at this. Sure, and that, it's that like a of revamp
1: thing. of it. Right, right. Um, and you know, and I've also heard some other arguments as saying yes, there needs to be a fiduciary rule, but maybe it should come from the sec versus the dol
2: yeah and that you know what that's and the pro- sec that's is
1: the S- securities exchange commission prob- that regulates the industry that's probably valid probably that's probably true better way yeah. to look
2: at things yeah sure. i mean that's the agency that you would think would be watching over for this sort of thing a right. little bit more than the department of labor
1: so i guess just fyi if you were anticipating things to because a lot of these um companies came out publici- publicly publicly Uh, the big brokerage firms and say, all right, well, from now on in retirement accounts, we will just charge a fee for the advice versus any type of commissionable products. Other people were kind of sitting on the sidelines just to kind of see, you know, wait and see type of thing. Sure, right. Uh, But just FYI, buyer beware, of course. if It sounds too good to be true. In most cases, it probably is. Um, You know, some of the things that were on top of the list, of course, were um, some packaged products that, um, you know, know, such maybe as an, an annuity of some sort that was guaranteeing X, Y, Um, I think if you dive in deep of some of, let's say, a fixed index annuity with a, a, a guaranteed income rider on it, how they're sold and how they work might be two different things. Uh, But if you get into the weeds with the product and you truly understand how it works and then purchase it, then, yeah, then you've done your due diligence. But I think a lot of times you might hear there's certain guarantees that are – there's guarantees there, but it's not the guarantee that you anticipated, such as a 7% guarantee on the money. Well, no, that's a roll-up for your guaranteed income, and sometimes it's not fully disclosed. Uh, Then you have the non-traded REITs where there's very little – liquidity and you don't know and very little transparency, so you're not sure exactly what your income really is. Is it return of principal? Is it actual income from the properties that you're purchasing? Uh, so uh, the fiduciary rule will, will probably be kicked down the road a little bit, yeah, as they I, say. Yeah, I would
2: say so. And I guess if you really can't tell from our discussion, we were for it because we we think that the industry should be under the fiduciary standard. And, and I think you will find that most fee-only financial planners are all for it. I mean, this, this to me is how the industry should move. There was a lot of lobbying by the insurance companies, by the big brokerage houses, because they didn't want this to go into effect because all of a sudden their way of doing business would would fundamentally change.
1: Well, because now they're held liable, right? Then you can sure. sue. There'll be class yeah. action lawsuits if one person said, "Hey, they sold me this product and they should have been acting as a fiduciary versus the suitability standard." Right. And, this, and if what, I have the, a big yeah. brokerage firm with thousands of different advisors, I mean, the oversight on that is fairly challenging. That's true. And, and so I I can understand it from their standpoint to administer this whole thing and and
2: so and, and maybe maybe this should be revamped, but the but the spirit of it I think is correct. No, I agree with you.
1: 100%. Yeah. Percent. Yeah. Um, so uh, we'll um, talk more about this, I, I guess, as things as time goes on. As time we'll goes on, we, as we see can, how this rolls out, see we uh, get a little clarity on on exactly what's going on. But like rollovers, for instance, let's say if you have a four hundred one k plan, um, and a lot of times advisors, our firm uh, is one of them that would say, all right, do you want to keep it in the four hundred one k or would you roll it into your own individual retirement account? Um, depending on the circumstance of the individual client, but I would say the majority of the time, the advice is to roll it over. And I think there's a lot of good reasons to roll it over. So you get professional management of it, you get tax efficiencies from it, uh, you have someone that's not necessarily emotional tied to your money. So there's a lot of pros, but there's also some cons
2: there too. There are. Of course, there's generally more investment choices in your own IRA versus your 401k. But yeah, you're right, there are some cons and, and some of the cons come down to the advisor that you pick, because some advisors are going to sell you expensive product and you may not even know it
1: where you would have been better off staying in your 401k. Right. And then and then I I think everything is so glued on fees and th- I guess this is kind of biased because our firm, of course, charges fees, but it's, it's the behavior that takes way more of the, the overall account balance than uh, than a fee, if it's a reasonable fee. Yeah, right? and so
2: what we're saying is if the market, and we see this every year with Dalbar studies, they, they look at the what the market has performed versus what the average investor has earned on the basis of their behavior when they get into the market, when they get out of the market. And Joe, every year, it's somewhere between maybe on the low side, 3% rate of return that You lost just by being an investor. It could be a
1: fifty to seventy-five percent
2: or less than what the market. That's right. And we've seen six or seven percent rate of return. In other words, the market's earning ten, and you're earning three because you're buying and selling at the wrong times. You're buying when the market is going up when you're excited, so you're buying high, and you're selling when it corrects, so you're freaking out, so you're selling low. And it's interesting these doll bar studies. It's uh, in a lot of cases if you have an advisor that can can sort of keep you in your seat, for lack of a better term, and stay invested, you do a lot better over the long term. And, and, and actually, that particular rate of return just from that is generally more than the fees, usually quite a bit more than the fees they're charging.
1: Right. We had Carl Richards on the show a, a few times, and he wrote the book The Behavior Gap. Right. And so um, he did extensive research, um, including the research from Dahlbar. Uh, we're taking a look at the inflows and outflows of equity mutual funds of the average individual investor and of course when markets are at their peak as we see today we're seeing more and more inflows of equity type mutual funds and when markets go down Uh, then we see a lot of outflows of equity-type mutual funds. So we're doing the exact opposite of what we should be doing because of the emotion that's involved with our money. And the closer we get to retirement, the more that we look at our overall money and the more emotion is that much more real because now I have to spend it versus save it. And there's all sorts of now new, um, you know, Ph.D. degrees in behavior uh, when it comes to your overall finances. Right. So uh, stay tuned. We'll talk a lot more about the DOL and what's going to happen there in the weeks and months to come. Alan, what lists do you have this week? Uh, Well, I've got a good one to start with, Joe, and this is uh, seven
2: essential retirement rules for anyone over 50. Seven
1: essential rules. I guarantee you it's all fluff.
2: Uh, there might be some common good stuff sense. In here. Let's could be. Let's could have be. a little dose of common but sense. But before I get right into it, the Pew Research Center estimates that about ten thousand baby boomers are expected to retire each day until two thousand thirty. We've been sort of. We've been saying that statistic for years. Now we know when it stops. We never have computed this, Joe. So it's 2030. 30. All (laughs) right. right. So 13 years. 13 years from now. All right. Right. So as a consequence... And then it goes to what? (laughs) 9,900? Well, then there's no more baby boomers. They're already all retired.
1: All right. So here's... I got a question. I'm sorry. Yeah. All right. So because of this age wave, right? You got these 10,000 baby boomers turning 65 every day for the next 13 years. Right. All right. And so with that um they're talking about the solvency of social security because there's so many people now at age 65 or close to full yeah, retirement as, as age a, as a percentage higher versus any other time in in our history so then they're looking at all right well let's look at the the trust fund the OASDI fund and how because more money's going on to that fund than, that is actually getting funded at this point right because of the baby boomers are retiring right and then so by what 2037 or so uh then it's about Eighty percent of it is going to be able, or eighty percent of the obligations would be able to get paid because the trust uh, trust fund is now zero. Yeah, in, in other words, if the trust fund,
2: fund uh, runs out, which it's projected to, I've I've seen anywhere between two thousand thirty-four and 30, two thousand thirty-seven, two thousand thirty-eight. I guess it went up lately because well, the market's it. done better. <laughs> But but at any rate, the, the thing is, even if the trust fund is out of money, there's still money coming in. So the last I saw, it's 77% of your benefits you'll still get anyway. And a lot of people don't realize it. They think it's going to be zero, right? And, of course, that's if
1: there's no changes in Social Security, which there will be. Right, but then here's the other question that I have. What is the largest demographic that we are living I mean, so you got the greatest generation, you got the baby boomers, you got Generation X, you got Generation Y and the millennials, and now you have Generation The next one. Z. <laughs> no, no, the next z one I don't is. know, whatever. Yeah. Okay. Out of those generations, which is the largest? Which is the largest? Um,
2: I I think the millennials maybe. The millennials are, yeah, right. Yeah, which you know it, we've always said it's baby boomers always, and always. now now the millennials have taken over.
1: Exactly. So the millennials are the largest generation, and so all right, well let's just fast forward to twenty thirty four. Right. Okay. Well, the millennials are the largest generation. They will be in the workforce, paying FICA tax. How does that thing run out?
2: Right. <laughs> well, and plus, Joe, this is something that they've tweaked and changed over time. They've raised the limits. they raise raised the percentages. They they, they increase the retirement age. There's lots of ways to fix that. And, and everyone knows it's a fixable issue. No one wants to tackle it because it's a political I mean, hot potato. It's a nightmare. It. Yes, right. right? But at any rate, that's... Uh, Social Security, uh, I will tell you, is is here to stay. It's it's not going anywhere. Oh boy, I'm that's a down. pretty big statement there. It is. All right, what do you, you got for want, your list there? Let's... You want the seven essential retirement rules? The first one is the dreaded B word. Can B you...
1: budget. Yes, do budget.
2: But <laughs> Buckle down on on a budget. Uh, this is this is written by Judith Ward in Forbes magazine. So uh, general spending guideline is fine when you're years away from retirement, but now the rubber meets the road if you're 50 and older, right? It's time to get serious about your what your budget will be when you're retired. Track your spending carefully. Figure out what expenses you, you won't have and when you stop working and which expenses that may actually increase. That sounds
1: like way too much work, and most people won't do it. Here's an easier way to do this. Yeah, give us a shortcut, Jim. Right? I mean, here's a dry run through. Because what we talk about quite a bit as you're saving money or as you're accumulating wealth through retirement is pay yourself first. Right. Right? Find out how much money that you need to save. Do that, and then then spend everything else. Who cares? You don't need a budget. Right. Just save first, then spend everything else. Right? Most people do the opposite. You know, right? They pay their bills. They go out to dinner. They do this. And all of a sudden, there's nothing left at the end of the month. Yeah, 100 bucks, maybe. Yeah, maybe 50 bucks. Yeah. yeah. Okay. But if you pay yourself first. So now now you're retired. It's like, oh, now we got to buckle down and budget all this stuff. No, here's the simple steps that you need to take. Figure out what your fixed income sources are. What is your Social Security? What is your pensions? Do you have real estate income and so on? Add all those dollar figures up. So if you're married, of course, add your, your spouse's Social Security, your Social Security. If you have pensions, and let's assume I'm married. And let's assume that my social security is twenty thousand dollars, my wife's is twenty thousand dollars, so that's forty grand, and then maybe we have a small pension of another ten thousand bucks. Right. So fifty thousand dollars is our fixed income source, all right? Then I have to take a look at my assets. How much money do I have in retirement accounts versus mutual funds versus Roth accounts and so on and so forth? Then just take four percent of that number. So if I have fifty thousand dollars in fixed income and I have a hundred thousand dollars saved. Right, sure. so four percent of that hundred thousand is four thousand dollars. Okay, so my income is fifty-four grand. So I take the fifty plus the four. Fifty plus the four, fifty-four thousand dollars. That's your budget. Do you right? If you spend more than that, you will run out of money.
2: Yeah. So yeah.
1: I, I mean, if you look at it like that, that will take you five minutes to do. Right. Versus tracking your expenses for you know ninety days, and then you'll just get frustrated. Oh, honey, why why are you spending? What what did you do that again? Or what's that? So you took cash out of the cash machine. You got to tell me about that because I'm on this strict you know Excel spreadsheet. It's like <laughs> figure well. that out, and then. Then come up with an overall retirement income strategy to make sure that you're managing the assets, tax managing it okay, to take that four percent out and how are you gonna deal with it yeah, its own
2: I, th- I think that's a good exercise and Joe. I, I like the what you do when you teach classes, you, you ask people, well, how are you gonna spend less in retirement? Oh yeah, I'm gonna spend seventy five percent of what I'm spending right now. And so then you ask the question the other way. Well, if if, if we took seven twenty five percent away from your salary today, could you afford your lifestyle? Oh, there's no way. Absolutely not. Spend every penny.
1: Right. It's well, like, well, are you gonna, yeah. Well, of course I'm going to spend less in retirement. Well, how much are you going to spend less in retirement? Well, I don't know. We'll we'll probably spend, yeah, 75%. Okay, so you're saving, so you can save 25% and there's no chance (laughs) in hell. So anyway, that's a good
2: exercise, right? Is to do a kind of a a retirement... what do you call it?
1: Back of the envelope type analysis. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. So I have had a more clever word, but that's all right. I'll think of it later. Here's number two. Get cozy with your 401k, Joe. Cozy with your 401k <sighs> oh. for years. You've thought of the 401k as money you couldn't Plus touch. Me. Now this will be likely a valuable source of funding in your retirement. If possible, talk to your company's benefits team to see how you can access your money after you leave. You may be able to leave your money in the plan and make periodic withdrawals. You may have to do a rollover to an IRA uh, and so you got to figure this stuff out. We are just talking about that. Get cozy. Cozy. That's re- <laughs> No comments <laughs> on that one. Okay, here's location, location, location. Where are you going to live? Are you staying put in retirement or are you mulling a move? Oh. You like these words that I'm that are in this article. <laughs> I mean,
1: it's, it's the, you can, never
2: mind. Do, do you and your partner feel the same way about it? You want to live in Florida? Your partner wants to live in Canada, right?
1: Right. Well, I mean, yeah. if if you look at the statistics, most people want to stay in their home. They do. That's where your memories are. That's where you raised your kids. That's where everything else. And a very small percentage of people actually want to.
2: Not only do they want to stay in their home, they do stay in their home. I mean, it's overwhelming majority. And the next one I got, determine your Social Security claiming strategy. Joe, did you know that the average Social Security payment in 2016 was $1,341 for an individual or... $2,212 $2,212 for a couple, right? So $24,000, call it $26,000, $28,000 for a couple is the average. And here in Southern California, that would be a little bit difficult to make that work. However, averages are deceiving, right? Because I'll put it this way. if you're If you're making a good salary, a lot of our listeners are, and if you're near the top or maybe even past the top of the Social Security cap, you can probably what would you say joe probably if you retire at full retirement age which is 66 and 2 years you probably get somewhere around $2000 Per month. And if you go to age 70, it's probably about $3,000 per month in, in rough numbers, just to give you a sense. So those numbers are greater. If your spouse works, then you could potentially even double that. So it it does depend on your salary. But the claiming strategies are crucial. So many
1: people claim their benefits at 62. All right. And I think there's confusion, too, on how it's actually calculated. So if you take a look at the last 35 years of earnings, the highest 35 years is how they calculate your um, PI. A primary primary insurance amount. Uh, so if you continue to work, I get we get this question quite a bit. It's like, all right, well, if I continue to work, is that going to hurt my Social Security benefit, or what? Uh, how does that happen, or what 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 goes on there? Right. Your benefit, if you continue to work, will never go down. It would only go up or stay the same because they take the highest thirty five years. So if you had, let's say, only 30 years of work history and you had those other five years, Social Security just plugs them in as zero. As zero. Zero. Right? So if, even if you work part-time, it's going to help you. It's going to help yeah, you, right, right. Um, as long as you know you put into the system. So And you could work until 70, 75. They'll still re- recalculate those dollars. So if you're going to continue to work past full retirement age, even if you decide to collect your benefit at 66, let's say. I collect my benefit at 66, but I'm young, spry, and I still want to work for another 10 years. Well, as you continue to work, and if you're at a high wage earner, right, they're just going to replace those higher wages with maybe a lower wage that you made 35 years ago. So your benefit is recalculated every single year. So it continues to recalc on you. Right. Uh, So, But if you do take it at 62, just know that you would receive receive about a 25% permanent haircut on those dollars. And if you're working full time, as you collected your benefit prior to full retirement age, you can't make more than about $16,000. Once you make more than sixteen grand, they take two dollars back, or they take a dollar back every two dollars that you earn. And then once you reach the year of your full retirement age, then it's about forty-some odd thousand dollars, forty-three thousand bucks, and then they take back a dollar after every three dollars earned after that threshold. So I'm only talking about once your full retirement age, you can collect your benefit. You can make X amount of dollars. They're not going to take any dollars back. And they don't take it and steal it, right? They just recalculate your benefit like you didn't take it for that month or that year or whatever, or however the calculation works out. Yeah, there.
2: and th- that's a good point, Joe, because we do get asked that all the time. Well, how much can I make and still receive Social Security benefits? And it depends on what age, right? So basically, if you're between 62 and 66, roughly... Roughly, there's issues if you have earned income and, and if it's before your your year that you reach full retirement age, It's you can only make about 16000 bucks. So don't take your benefits then, probably, if you're still working. Now, if you reach 66 years old and two months, as, as it is right now, and you want to take your benefits and you're still working full-time, well, you can. You get full benefits after full retirement age, 66 years and two months. You still, though, may want to wait till age 70, right? Because if you wait till 70, You're going to get roughly thirty to thirty-two percent higher benefit than if you took it at that sixty-six year age, right? And so here's the thing: is if you're working and don't need Social Security, why take it? Because it just keeps growing each and every month for the rest of your life by you delaying it,
1: right? And then there's all sorts of different, um, I guess, opinions. Uh, Is like, well, I'm going to take it early, but then I'm going to invest it. All right, so then you have to look at all sorts of different crazy assumptions and you're looking at crossover points and break-even I, we don't look at it that way. We look at Social Security as longevity insurance. It's like, all right, well, here, I'm going to receive an 8% delayed retirement credit on my benefit. That benefit is guaranteed by the federal government. Yes. You can take it early, and if you invest and you get a certain rate of return, are you going to be better off? Sure. It's depending on what type of assumptions that you make in, in regards to the, the, the amount that you think that you can grow that money up. Yeah, that's a good point. If you, can, if you think you can earn 15%, then do it. Take it early. Yeah, take it early and invest <laughs> it. Um, but- but but most then, most of us don't. Right, markets go up, markets go down, and you want to make sure that you have some form of you know guaranteed fixed income. Um, you can, and, and we feel that Social Security is a great source for that versus maybe purchasing an annuity or anything else um, for that matter. Yeah, and, and part of that too is Social Security is not fully taxable. Worst
2: case. Fifteen percent of Social Security is tax-free, and in, in some cases, none of
1: it's taxable. Right. It depends on how you you toggle your income. Right. Right. Because you have full control of how that income potentially is going to be taxed in retirement, depending on how you set yourself up. If it's all in a retirement account, well, then you have very little control because it's taxed just like your paycheck when it comes to ordinary income um, tax, um, and you know, state of California or whatever state that you live in. But if you have money in a brokerage account, let's say, maybe a money in a Roth account and you have money in a, a, a retirement account. Then you have three different areas where you can draw your income from. Now you can start controlling the taxation, you know, which is key. And then if you understand the provisional income when it comes to how Social Security is taxed, then you could really play with the numbers to make sure that you're doing everything appropriately up front. So when it comes time to collect your Social Security, to start drawing down your investment assets or taking distributions from it, you're doing it with the right tax mode. Well, Joe, we're talking about seven essential retirement rules for
2: anyone over 50. Now, we sort of touched on this next one, which is probably the the single most important one here. Uh, which is map out a strategy for withdrawals because once you stop working and the paychecks stop coming in, how are you going to pay for things? Because in addition to your regular income and such as social security and pension income, you'll have to spend from your savings, and isn't that the whole reason you saved in the first place? Mm-hmm. And now it's a matter of which savings accounts do you take the money from? Do you take it from the IRA, from the four hundred one k, from the Roth IRA, from your non qualified non retirement account, or combination? The advice everyone gets for the most part is spend down your non-qualified money, your non-retirement money first because it doesn't cause any taxes. And I would say in many cases, if not all cases, that's probably the exact wrong thing to do.
1: Yeah. It's a very emotional as well um, because now you're spending the money that you saved. And that's a very difficult thing for a lot of you to do. And I get it. It's like, well, no, I, I'm a saver. I'm not a spender. Yeah, it is hard to change you know, that. Right? You right? want you, Because I think most of the time you look at your account balance and you like to see it go up. Right. But once you start taking money from the account, right, but then you're, oh, I'm averaging 10%, so I'm going to take 10% out. Yeah. Okay, well, more- then... W- We've seen that disaster happen. We, we have
2: the smarter thing is uh, is if
1: you're taking out four percent, maybe you should be earning six or yeah, seven. But I think a lot of times people are, are a little naive going into this um, because once you start. Selling assets, right? It's like, well, what asset are you going to sell? Right. What strategy are you going to use? When are you going to sell it? Do you, you know, put a year or two years in cash, and or do you, you know, just try to live off of the the interest or dividends that it's kicking out and not spending anything else? What is and then and then getting more complex of are you taking it from your IRA, your Roth IRA, or your you know brokerage account? How is that going to affect your Social Security benefits? I mean, there's a lot more to this. It gets very complex.
2: It, it does, um, and, and and sometimes just simple simple things like I've got these investments that I've had forever outside of retirement. If I sell them, there's big gains. So, And some people don't pay any attention to that. They sell them, they got these big gains where if they're charitable, they could have given those highly appreciated securities right to their charity and get the deduction for what the stock right, is worth. Right, they're giving cash to the charity. Yeah, or the and, church and not or have what? to pay taxes on the gain, right? And and it's, it's funny, because we talked to a lot of people. A lot of people don't even know you can do that, that charities will accept stocks instead of cash. So much smarter way to go, because then you avoid the capital gains tax on that.
1: And then once you reach 70 and a half, you can give your required minimum distribution directly to charity. That's correct. Here, I want to ask you a question here. All right, so here's the law. Up to $100,000 of your required distribution go directly to a charity. That's right. When would that make sense versus just saying, you know what, I'm going to give X. And then just write that off as a deduction.
2: Yeah. So I think your question is, you can either let's let's say your required distribution is a hundred thousand, just to make it you know, so so, which means you got a lot in your IRA, your four hundred one k. And let's say you're also very charitable. You want to give a hundred thousand dollars away. So you can either withdraw the funds out of your IRA, four hundred one k, and it's income on your return, right? And then you have a hundred thousand dollar donation, which is a write off. So it would seem that whether you do it directly from your IRA, then it doesn't show up on your return versus. It's on the return as income and a deduction. It would seem to be the same, but there's lots of cases where you'd rather have it go directly to charity because when you have the income, the required minimum distribution, on the front page of your 1040, it's part of your just gross income, that impacts how much of your Social Security will be taxable. It impacts uh... how much medicare surtax that you might pay it it will impact whether your exemptions are being phased out all kinds of stuff right there. And then the other thing, too, is when you give away big charitable donations, they're limited to your adjusted gross income, and you can get a situation where if you take the RMD and then record the charitable deduction, you don't get to deduct it all because your adjusted gross income isn't high enough. So there's lots of, actually, situations. So
1: if it, uh, I guess to dumb that thing down, Al, wow. Yeah, <laughs> you, you asked. Jeez. <laughs> <It's>, <laughs> If I'm given ten thousand dollars to a charity and I have lower income, it's not it's it's, it's six in actually, one hands, half dozen another. That would, be,
2: that would be the best time to do it, Joe, because if you're in lower income, if then it's going to affect the Social Security correct, taxation. Correct. Exactly. So there's
1: got to there's a sweet spot where it's not yeah. going to make any difference, yeah. and then there's another sweet spot where it's going to make a, a ton I, of difference. I would
2: say honestly, so I'll, I'll try to dumb it down. So lower income, you definitely want to do that because D- all
1: right, <laughs> do what is directly take it from the IRA to the charity.
2: Yeah direct contribution to charity because less of your social security will be taxable or higher income. You want to do it because you'll stay out of that the Medicare phase-outs. surtax and then, and the phase outs. Right. Got it. All right. And so. so, so to quantify that, I would say, I would say if your income is probably even with social security, less than about, I don't know, 50 grand or or so. Then you you might want to do the direct contribution because you're going to have less of your Social Security taxable. Or if your income's above 250, right, then it's going to be appropriate for you. And there could be reasons, Joe, where even if you're in the middle there, you might want to do it. But that's probably the sweet spot.
0: Joe and Big Al are always willing to answer your financial questions. Email info at purefinancial.com.
1: Uh, This is from Darren G. Darren, okay. I listened to you and have enjoyed it. Wow, that's a first. I like it. (laughs) Some of the things you talk about are a little different. I especially like the discussion about having the cash bond stock split that uh, look to balance the portfolio based on your ability to not have to sell a depreciated asset for a few year period. Uh, basically suggesting a larger percentage of stocks risk is okay as long as there's enough cash or bonds to weather the downturn. Hope I got that right. So yeah, I mean, I think a lot of times when we say how much money should you have in stocks versus bonds is based on cash flow needs, it's not based on a stupid risk tolerance questionnaire, right, right. right? It's like, all right, well, here, I need to develop a, you know $30,000 from the portfolio, and then that number is going to increase each year just due to the fact that i got to pay a little bit of tax on that, and then there's also inflation. And if my only fixed income source is Social Security, then the 100% of the demand of that extra income has to come from my portfolio. So you want to make sure that you have a buffer there to say, you know what, I'm going to have at least five years of fixed income sources, or maybe seven years or ten years really depending on the person, right? And what their overall asset base looks like and so on and so forth. It's very specific to that individual. But yeah, you get the gist. Is that who cares if the market crashes? Because you have enough to weather the storm for the next five years. If you think the, right? Well, markets go down, markets go up, markets go down and markets go up. So you don't want to be selling an asset when it goes down. He goes on to say, so given that, (laughs) my question relates to how to treat pension income. Okay. All right. So when I look for pension money advice, there doesn't seem to be any logical explanation of the pension cash stock bond balance. My wife and I have a six figure annual pension payment uh, for life, uh, whoever lives the longest. If I treat that income as let's say a 5% bond payment, the present value is equal to our savings. Right. So, I mean, if you look at $100,000 fixed income, yeah. right, that's a couple million bucks, depending on, he's using 5%. So, sure, sure, right. 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 So, it seems to me I should take on a lot more risk than, let's say, a 60, 40 stock portfolio. Look to hear you discuss it on Saturday.
2: That's a great question and I would say Darren uh, yes you can <laughs> if you want to right so so here here's the the modified formula the uh, let, let's call it 100,000 you said six figure and let's say you're spending 120,000 for example so you need $20,000 from your portfolio and Joe to use your to paraphrase what you just said is in in your case, since you got a lot of assets, let's make sure that you're good for 10 years. So let's say 10. You need 20,000 a year. Let's multiply that by 10 years. So you ought to have at least 200,000. dollars And in, it sounds like he's got let's say a couple million yeah, dollars in liquid assets. Right. At least a couple hundred thousand dollars in in fixed income, so that if the if the stock market were to go down for a decade, which by the way it never has, except for the Great Recession.
1: That's only one market, though, right? That's
2: only the S&P 500. That's if true. you look
1: at emerging markets, small cap, and so on true. and so forth, those that, all went that's up.
2: That's true. So 10. Years would be actually plenty conservative and just so you understand when we're saying ten years it's not like that the two hundred thousand dollars is going to produce the income that you need you're gonna be selling some of those bonds to create the cash flow that you need right that's how this works but then you can let the rest of your portfolio do its thing it will come recovering as long as you believe in capitalism if you, if you don't believe in capitalism then maybe you don't want to have that much risk but that's the concept now on the other hand let's let's take the flip side joe which is if if in this case you have 2 million dollars so that would be 1.8 million in the market 200,000 of in fixed income that may if you that may be more risk than you want to take if you're the kind of guy or gal that will wake up in the middle of the night when your portfolio goes down 30% 20% then let's taper that back a bit so
1: you you got to make you, there's a lot of things you want to look at all at once here here's the hierarchy um... And and I agree with you 100%. The first part of this is to really take a look at the income need right and say all right well if you need an additional twenty thousand dollars from the portfolio or maybe it's zero p- from the portfolio but to to keep with the consistency of your example is like all right well here I need twenty thousand dollars let's do that by 10 let's uh, you know take a present value calculation you probably need about 250 two hundred sixty thousand dollars in safe investments given inflation over that 10-year period yeah, Exactly. Right? right we'll call it three hundred thousand okay right so three hundred thousand and then you take that whatever else that you have that would be the stock mix and then you have three hundred thousand in tips, governments, treasuries, right? Um, you know, maybe really high quality um, international bonds and so on. Sure. So then you know that those are going to be safe. Very shortened duration, by the way, right? Shortened du- duration, high quality. So you're not going to see that variability or volatility in those bonds if you went longer term. Right. So that's the first step, right? Because now I covered my income need for the next 10 years. So if the market blows up, I'm all right with that over the short period of time because I know the recovery, right, I'm going to be safe for 10 years. So that's the first step. Then the second step is what's the ultimate goal of the money? Is it for the kids? Is it for the grandkids? Is it for charity? Do you want to maximize that, right? If you say, no, I don't really, you know, it's just us, whatever. Then third, then you say, all right, now what's the sleep factor? Right. Now, where are you at? Because if that $2 million drops down to 1.5, you lost $500,000. Say in a six-month time period, what are you going to do? Are you going to freak out? Are you going to abandon the strategy? If the answer is yes, then yeah, then you want to start toggling it really based on your specific kind of risk tolerance. But you don't start there, I guess is the point. Hey, how do you feel if the market dropped 20%? Well, everyone says, I would be pissed. It sucks. I lost a lot of money. Right. Right. And, and then it, it, it's how you feel at that moment of time when you when 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 they ask you that question too. So that's why we're not big fans of that. We start with the full financial planning. What's the cash flow need? What's the tax implications? What's the overall goals of the money? And then at then we layer you know some of the the, the other stuff that the industry kind of leads with. Alan, I'm pretty excited right now. Yeah, we've got another great guest. Yeah, his name's Andrew. He hosts. One of the best financial podcasts is called Listen Money Matters. And he agreed to come on our show? I can't believe it. <laughs> I got to pay this guy like 10 <laughs> grand. Uh, but hey, I want to get into this interview right away. So, Andrew, hey, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time out of your busy schedule to join us.
3: Hey, no problem. You're, you're making me blush over here.
1: <laughs> hey, well, I got to ask you, I guess, what are you drinking?
3: Oh, my God, I'm not drinking anything. <laughs> I'm terribly prepared to talk about personal finance right now.
1: Well, that's no fun. Yeah, well, you got to crack a beer or something, right?
3: All right, I'm getting a bomber right now. What are you guys thinking?
1: I got a coffee. Yeah, Big L's old, man. He's got a cup of coffee, and I'm just jacked up on some energy drink. Well, let me ask you this. All right, so a little bit of background on yourself, what you work for. You're not even in the personal financial field. And you were like, you know what, hey, there's not enough information for individuals to really understand finance on a, on a basic level to get into the weeds. Or Why did you start the podcast? And tell our listeners a little bit about the genesis of it and, and more about your background.
3: Yeah, sure. So uh, by day, I'm a data engineer, and I work with a lot of people who are many-fold smarter than me, uh, but they really suck with money. And a lot of them are in debt. Uh, they're, they're buying just dumb things. And uh, – I thought it was about time to, you know, make something that spoke to these people, my friends, to help them to retire early and just not work until they're 80.
1: And so, you are like, all right, well, I got a couple of buddies. They're making some money. And they're buying TVs and nice cars, renting. And you're like, "Enough's enough." Let me start a podcast and just because it, it, it's such an easy flow in podcast. It's it's you and um, another gentleman just kind of talking about you know everyday life of what people go through. So, so what you started the podcast in what 2012?
3: Yeah, so I actually had a friend, a specific friend, who was terrible with money, and we would just get on Skype, and I would would basically just yell at him for all the things he was doing wrong, and my wife was like, you should record this, and yeah, so we kind of just cover the gamut, and we don't get preachy. We share a beer or wine or cocktail and just take it easy.
1: What do you think some of the biggest mistakes that people are making, you know, I guess in any age group, a lot of our listeners are probably a little bit more into retirement where they've made some mistakes. They probably should have been listening, you know, to a podcast like ours or yours, you know, 30 years ago. But what I find is really cool is I, I would imagine your, your listenership is maybe a little bit younger where you can tell them, you know, square in the face of like, here, this is what you got to do. Uh, what, what do you see some of the biggest mistakes that, you know, everyone across the board is making?
3: You know, for people who are, you know, like 30, 35, it's easy to be like, uh, you need to invest, you know, the time horizon is so huge, you'll just do well. Um, And I think it covers everyone. But the one thing that that people overlook, and, and I live in New York, so my cost of living is not, you know, that of Canada, but your whole retirement is based on your savings rate. It's really simple. And, you know, if you could... if you were never saving before, and you have no debt. You could save about 50% of your income. You could retire in about 10 years. And so there are people who reach out to us, and maybe they're 40 or 50, and they say, it's too late for me. And I'm like, no, not really. You just had a ton of fun when you were younger, and now you have to you know, buckle up. And uh, you know, save like 80% or something,
1: and you can make up for lost time. That's it, huh? just, <laughs> just <laughs> 80%. No problem, what do I say? <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, you know, and I love this movement, too. Um, I was talking to Big Al earlier about, you know, the, the millennial movement of saying, hey, I, I don't want to work for the man. I want to either start my own business, w- you know, work really hard, save as much as I can, and then be done by 40 and you know and, and i'm seeing a lot more individuals actually accomplishing that goal uh, well, but see,
3: that's the thing with the the saving of 80% like it's, it's laughable right but you could either uh, spend less or make more And uh, I have a full-time job. I've had a full-time job. I have a full-time wife. I have a full-time family. I go out and drink. And somehow I started a business that earns more than my actual engineering salary. And I'm not that smart. Like, I think that uh, it's just like focused time, right? You have to kind of... I think it's something like on social media, people spend 600-something hours a year on it. Just take half of that and do something meaningful and don't give up. 600 hours? 600 hours? (laughs) <laughs> that is crazy. It's crazy, dude. right? <laughs> I think it's even more on Netflix. I mean, it's like close to like thirteen hundred.
1: Oh boy! Oh, well, I I got to get my
2: Netflix. You're uh, you're not even on Facebook, Joe. So you've got all kinds of time.
1: I do, and yeah. I don't even have cable.
2: <laughs> I should be saving eighty percent of my income. What the hell the am sp- I doing? <laughs> you should be the smartest guy in the room. God, <laughs> I am stupid too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good stuff. So Andrew, so the Millennials, so you're saying obviously with the time horizon, if they can start now, they can have whatever retirement they want, and yeah, of course it doesn't have to be 50% or 80%, but even if they put away like say 15% uh, for a number of years, they, they should have a great retirement, and a lot of folks aren't really doing that.
3: Yeah, and you know, that's the thing, I, I don't save 50%. I, I like my beer, I, I like my all my things, I take Uber sometimes. But like you said, if you can be responsible and save 15-20%, you know, if your employer is matching a 401k, take advantage of that free cash. Uh, like you you could definitely get out before 65.
0: What
1: what do you think with um, you know, younger uh, when it comes to retirement accounts? Do you more or less push your listeners more towards um, Roth IRAs or, or traditional 401ks?
3: So, uh, I Say that when you have matching you should definitely get as much matching from your company as possible because even if it was 25% the return is ridiculous you know one year you get that um I don't qualify for an IRA um, a lot of the people in my audience don't as well um but uh, there are there are things like if you open a business you could set up a SEP IRA um you know if you have a low deductible or I'm sorry, a high-deductible health care plan. You could do an HSA and kind of like backdoor the whole thing. So um, it really depends on the situation. Although I will say personally, for me, I don't believe that a 401k makes sense because I, I hope that when I retire, I'll be making more than I did now.
1: Right, right, right. And so looking at the, the, the taxation of it, you'll probably be potentially in a higher tax bracket, and so you want to do the opposite to get m- maybe lower taxes on the on the way out than in.
3: Right, if, if I do it right, hopefully.
1: <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about real estate, and I'll let you go. I know that you um, look and in, in help individuals with real estate. Big Al's been a real estate investor for about, what, 30 years, buddy? Yeah, about 30. Yeah, and he's lost more than he's gained, so he, he needs your help. <laughs> yeah, give me some tips.
3: <laughs> yeah, sure. Dude, I, I know you're a smart guy. I'm sure you did your math, and maybe the tide went against you. But, but I don't believe in appreciation. I, you know, I live in Hoboken and I've, I've definitely benefited from that, but um, I think that if you go in where you're cash flowing well from the beginning um, and you're using uh, correct math in calculating that, um, I think you'll generally do fine. And uh, it really just comes down to uh, researching a specific market. Uh, there, are, there are a lot of people who jump around uh, and I don't see anything necessarily wrong with that. I like to focus... Uh, and perhaps hit like economies of scale where maybe my property manager cares a bit more about me than someone who only has two properties with
1: them. W- with the, the numbers, with the math, how, how are you looking at the math? Because w- w- we're here in Southern California, um, and the prices of homes are, I would say comparable to, you know to New York, probably not as high. but um, you know we, we get individuals that say, yeah, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I want rental properties here in San Diego. Well, the average cost of a home is, you know, 600000 and then the rents are a, a few thousand bucks. So th- th- how, how do you help people pencil out the math?
3: Yeah, so um, I, I, it's actually really easy because uh, I was sitting there with a spreadsheet, and I wanted to kill myself, uh, but I'm a developer. Um, and so I actually built a tool that uh, you could search an address. It'll pull the data down from Zillow. It'll run all the numbers, uh, and it'll show you what your top line cash-on-cashes, and then I have um, an estimated 15% calculating for – and this is tweakable – for vacancy rates and major-minor capexes, like a a wall falling down or something. Um, And so you get like this medium-term cash flow number that should hopefully weather you through most scenarios. So uh, the people who listen to me and, and visit my site, just direct them there. It's free. You just go, type in an address, and it'll tell you everything you want to know.
1: Where should people go?
3: Uh, if you go to pro, P-R-O, dot uh, you can create a free account. Uh, we don't sell anything to you or sell your address, whatever. It's really just a tool to help people uh, make good real estate decisions.
1: Hey, man, uh, you're doing a great thing. Uh, I love the podcast. It's light. It's fun. Um, It it just feels like I'm sitting there having a beer with you guys. So um, I I appreciate you taking some time to talk to us and and, and bring some perspective into your life. Yeah,
3: absolutely. It was a ton of fun. Thanks for having me on.
1: All right. Hey, guys, I want you I'm sorry. You can go ahead. Have a beer. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm switching now. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the weekend, brother. You know, so um, right. I I usually drink Coors Light. I mean, I don't know half the stuff of that fancy craft beer stuff that you guys drink, but uh, um, I might have to try some of it.
3: Well, if you give me an address, maybe I'll send you some from New Jersey. <laughs>
1: uh, folks, that's Andrew. Check out, listen, money matters. You can download that where I'm um, all fine podcasts are um are available. Andrew, what do you think there, big Al? I like it. Got
2: some real estate tips. You know, uh, just to clarify, Mr. Joe Anderson, I've actually had a lot of successful real estate investors. I was jeez, I knew that was gonna and come and I've had a couple poor ones also. <laughs> <laughs> but it is it is interesting how you seem to remember your poor ones better than you reflect on your good ones, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> anyway, but I, I agree with them. I think cash flow is king. Now, it's difficult in Southern California to get a decent cash flow. And, and so, if you're going to invest in real estate in California, it's there probably is going to be a, a, a long term appreciation factor. But boy, you got to make sure you have the cash flow going in. I, I mean, case in point: people were were down in the downtown area before the Great Recession were buying condos for whatever, a million bucks, and you looked at the cash flow; they were losing a thousand bucks a month, fifteen hundred bucks a
1: month, but they said that's okay because I'm making two thousand a month in appreciation. I live downtown for many years. Yes, and I live uh, lived in one of the high rises by the ballpark, right? And I moved into that building in 07, 08. Yeah, right? that was right on the cusp. Of but that, huh? everyone bought into that building years beforehand. Sure, right? sure, right. Like 05, 06, and they're like, all right, well, this is going to be by the ballpark. You know, a 700-square-foot studio condo. Was going for seven fifty. Yeah, right. And then by two thousand eight, they'd be lucky if they could get it for four hundred. You know? Right, right. So yes, it is. And then the HOA fees are eight hundred bucks. Right, <laughs> you, and you gotta you gotta charge six grand in rent
2: <laughs> to cover
1: it, just to cover it for seven. Another uh, yeah, you gotta run the numbers.
2: You, you do have to run the numbers, and plus something else about that, Joe is is you got to have a lot of cushions in there. So you run the numbers, but you can't assume everything's going to go perfect every month. In other words, you're not going to have a tenant some months. You're going to have repair bills some months. Things come up, so you got to have factors for that. And some people, I would say San Diego, the average vacancy rate's 5%, but that doesn't mean all, all landlords get 5%. It's an average. Some, some are, are professional. Some it's like 10, 20% because they're, they're a little bit slow at re renting. So assess your own abilities and, and then have plenty of cushion. Make sure your cash flow is there in good markets and bad markets. And probably, probably, San Diego a, a real estate will continue to appreciate. And that's a good thing, but make sure you can afford it along the way.
1: So you're good at math, right? Yeah, pretty good math. All right. So here's an average for you. Okay. So you got a freezer. Okay. okay. What's the average temperature of your freezer? Freezer, let's say 20 degrees. I don't know. 20 degrees. Okay. Let's say zero. It's a really Arctic freezer. <laughs> it's your freezer. Zero.
2: You like your beer really cold. Right, yes. <laughs>
1: right. And then let's say you have an oven. Okay. Okay. And let's call
2: that 400 degrees to bake a pizza.
1: <laughs> okay. So <laughs> then, no, uh, that, that doesn't work with my example. Okay. Let's say it is... Two hundred degrees. Okay. okay. It's a little slow, slow cooker. The <laughs> slow cooker. All right. Slow, slow cooker oven. Two hundred degrees. Right. Right. And so, what's the average of that? That Average is a hundred. A hundred. Okay. Okay. Can you live in a hundred degree temperature?
2: You can. It might be a little uncomfortable. it l- might be a little uncomfortable. But you, you could.
1: You could. You know. Hey, sometimes a tropical island might be hundred degrees. Yeah, and, yeah. Yeah. Just hop in the water right. and get refreshed. So you know where I'm going with this, right? I do. All right. So if you put your head in the freezer, right, and your feet in the oven, <laughs> your body temperature is not going to be a hundred.
2: Yeah, the average hey, makes the no average sense. What's the average
1: temperature of your body?
2: Yeah, it's it's close about 100, 98.6. Yeah, well, 98.6. Well, look at you. It's We're, all came at, together. Working, working. <laughs> You spent days on that, that was, analogy. Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. I got another um, a question okay. that we're a little bit behind from our email from listeners. Our, okay. What do you got? Um, so this is not from Investopedia that okay. we kind of make fun of. These are from our these fans. Are, these are or, good or, questions uh, yes. from our listeners. Yes, and it, of course you can always go to info at pure let's, let's get it right. Or just email Alan or I directly.
2: Um, yes. Joe Joe um, dot, dot Anderson, Anderson. Anderson. and
1: Alan dot There you go. Okay, Joe and Big Al. Okay. I like how he called me Joe instead of Joel. Yeah. Most, most g- that's someone who's yeah. listened more than Big a- Al and the other guy. Yeah.
2: <laughs> it used to always be Big Al and Joel.
1: So thanks for always um, an informative and entertaining show. Well, wow. that's two compliments Jeez. in a week. Gosh. That's unheard of. Cherry picked. <laughs> <laughs> I got 100 that I had a shred. Uh, I just retired at 60. Am married. No children. Okay. Have no debt outside my mortgage. And right. have more income from sources than needed to meet my needs. Oh, I like that. Okay. In fact, in retirement, I am uh, in 2017, he's anticipating to be in the 33% tax bracket. Oh, my. My home mortgage interest is the only significant tax deduction I have. Okay. All right. So he has been supporting uh, my widowed mother, who's 80, okay. with a monthly deposit. As her primary source of income is Social Security. Okay. Between these two revenue sources, she's comfortable living on her own in her paid-for home. Her investments are small and safely invested, so there isn't really income from those. Okay. Right? She has a long-term care policy, and he is the sole beneficiary of her estate when she passes. Okay, What I was thinking, would it make sense to buy her home from her at a market price of, say, 200000 with her financing my loan? The payment... Would substitute for my current monthly stipend, thereby allowing her to live in the home, receive enough income as she does now, and I would have an additional tax deduction for the interest, property taxes, etc. When she passes, my payment would cease, and I would own the home free and clear. This just seems like a good way to continue to do what I'm doing to support her, but at a benefit for me regarding taxes. Am I missing something? (laughs) Or do you have any advice regarding moving forward with this plan? Many thanks. This is from John. From John. I thought you were going to say it was from Dennis. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
2: that's a John. Boy, you've been thinking about this. I, I like it. Because you're paying your mom anyway, right? So maybe there's a way to get a tax deduction to boot. Um, let me let me sort of maybe try to recap what I think you went through, which is uh, mom has a home that she's living in. Is that right? Yes, it's paid okay. off that's paid off so she mom sells you the home at market value call it two hundred thousand and she basically seller finance so that so there's a loan okay so at any rate then for you to um there's a couple ways to treat this one is it's a rental property another is it's a second home so let's start with if it's a rental property it it, it counts as a rental property uh, only if she's paying you fair market rent which I don't think she's gonna be doing because you're paying her so this would be a second home instead and so therefore as a second home you can still write off all the mortgage interest and all the taxes. The mortgage interest, as long as both loans, let's say, oh, well, we, didn't, we don't know what your, your, your loan is on your residence, but as long as both loans are less than $1.1 million, you can take a deduction. So that does work one of the downsides though is if you were if she were to live another 10 years let's just say
1: the appreciation of it
2: yeah the appreciation of the home and you inherit it you would get a full step up in basis let's say it's worth three hundred thousand dollars at that point maybe it's not going to be that much but anyway you would get a new step up in basis so if you were to sell the property there'd be no capital gain the way you're doing it if you sell the property when you finally uh, you know when she finally passes because you don't necessarily need it anymore, your basis is $200,000, not the higher amount. So, so
1: the tax benefit that he might <laughs> receive by doing this, he might have to pay it all back in capital gains tax if there's appreciation in the home. Yeah,
2: you kind of would have to pencil it out. I can't do it all that in my head, but those that, those, those would be kind of some of the pros and cons of doing this. But, but yeah, I like the idea because you're paying mom anyway right? And so why not get it some interest and, and tax property tax deduction? And that does work. That actually does work. It's, uh, I think it's more of a basis, tax basis type itch, issue, which you would be uh, like, what if she lived to 100? She's 80 now. So that'd be 20 years of appreciation that now you would have got it a higher basis by inheriting it, but you don't get because you bought it when it was cheaper.
1: A lot of things to consider. Boy, I'll say. You know, um See these are—you can tell these are your money, your wealth listeners. These are these are good questions. Um Now we're going to switch gears a little bit, and we're going to see if we can find some good email questions from Advisor Insights, Investopedia. If you guys haven't been to Investopedia, that's a good place to go. Okay. I am not compensated by Investopedia. I did, however, receive a pair of socks that I am wearing today. Oh, those? Huh. Yeah. You,
2: those and are, you've yeah. got one pair of socks, or more than one? No, just one. That's it. That's it. That's all you got for. That's all I got for doing all this. For doing all this stuff for the boy. That's like less than minimum wage. <laughs> I do
1: want to be. F- f- that's my my compensation for. So, reading, so in other words, um, in other their words there, there is a conflict. of interest. So, conflict of interest because be. you, you, got, get, you got some socks. You I might get, get, some get a more t-shirt. socks. <laughs> I might get a t-shirt. That's what I'm thinking on. Right. Okay. All right. How can I determine capital gains tax from the sale of a rental property? So here you okay. go, Alan. Oh boy. Uh, <laughs> My ex-husband and I own a single home rental property in Hawaii. Oh, I like that. We both live in other states. It was our primary residence beginning in 2010. Okay. And changed into a rental in 2012. Okay. Okay. It has since been a rental in which we've claimed depreciation through twenty sixteen. We purchased the home for two hundred fifty-five thousand and it has a current mortgage balance of two hundred thirty eight thousand. Okay. The total depreciation claim since 2012 through 2016 is about 4200 bucks. If we sell it at a regular sale not as a business rental for 400,000, how can we calculate the capital gains tax? Okay that's a good
2: question. Let me <laughs> make sure I got all these numbers right So they bought it for 255. is that is that what that says? Yes. Two fifty-five, and they're depreciating forty-two hundred. I assume that means per year. Doesn't say that, but that's
1: it's well. It says um, the total depreciation claim since twenty twelve through twenty sixteen is about forty-two hundred bucks. So they didn't calculate their depreciation no, that's, correct.
2: That's, that's wrong. But let's just assume that's what they did. Let's let's round it to five thousand. So so you take the two fifty-five that they bought it for five thousand dollars of depreciation. So now their tax basis is two fifty. So you take two fifty off of the four hundred thousand dollars is what they're going to sell it for, and we're not considering closing costs, we're just making this simple. So you got $150,000 long-term capital gain, right? So that's how that works. And that capital gain, depending upon your tax bracket, is either taxed at 15% or 20%. And in this case, it's you know it depends on the rest of their income. As a married couple, you'd have to have taxable income above about $470,000 to get to that 20% capital gains rate. So it's probably 15%. I'm guessing 15% federal rate. That $5,000, which I'm making up on depreciation, you have to pay 25%. Rate on 25% tax rate. That's called depreciation recapture. Uh, but yeah, roughly 15% of 150,000, you know, for federal purposes. So that's what 22,500. That's your federal tax plus a little bit more for that recapture. They right? should have been taking close to what 5,000 bucks a year. Uh, 4,200 is about right per year. Yeah, I would say. I, may, I don't know if that's what they mean or not. But so, tell t- what is um, how do people look at that? If they would taken the right amount. Or what mean? Yeah, how do
1: you how do you calculate what they should have taken?
2: Yeah, so you take the purchase price of two fifty five and then you gotta figure out how much of that is land versus building. And a lot of accountants will just arbitrarily say 75 percent is building and twenty five or thirty percent is land. You want a higher building allocation because you get to depreciate the building, which means you get to write off the building over time or the house
1: over 27 years
2: 27 and a half years so you take that 255,000 times call it 70% whatever that is you divide that by 27 and a half years and that's the amount of depreciation that you can take per year probably I'm guessing it would have been closer to 6 grand per year right. and they had it as a rental for 4 years so we sh- they should have had about 24 grand or 30 grand of depreciation not Five in our example. But at any rate, that's but that's how you calculate this. Now a couple other things to realize though is depending upon the amount of adjusted gross income you have, if you're a married couple and it's over two hundred fifty thousand, now you gotta pay that Medicare surtax of three point eight percent. So
1: if they had, let's say, an income yeah. of a hundred and some odd thousand, because that capital gain yeah, that's in, on, on in your top example is one hundred and fifty.
2: Yeah, let's say they had a you know, let's say they had two hundred thousand dollars of other income and this one hundred fifty What's that? That puts them up to three hundred fifty thousand. So now a hundred thousand of this gain has an extra three point eight percent attached to it because it's over two fifty, and fifty thousand does not. So really, your capital gain for most of it in that example is is like eighteen point eight percent, not fifteen percent. Then you got to pay state of Hawaii taxes because Hawaii has taxes. It's it's actually not quite as size California, but pretty darn close. Then you have to look at the state that you're living in, and then you decide: is is does my state have higher or lower taxes than Hawaii if it's lower taxes well you don't have to pay taxes in your own state but too bad you're out of the pocket for the state of Hawaii taxes if you live in California well California gives you tax credit for taxes you pay in Hawaii so you take your California taxes minus the Hawaii taxes and you pay the difference in California nauseating in it <laughs> but now our listeners know in- information oh, you can God. use.
1: How many car accidents just happened
2: <laughs> because they fell asleep? <laughs>
1: It's like,
2: I don't know how to make this any more interesting. <laughs> it is what it is. Let's <laughs> hear you do it. <laughs> oh, see. So
1: uh, you, I got to pay tax in two different states, but then I get a credit. You did. California credits me, whichever's uh, higher. Well, yeah. Ca- but then I got to file a California return and I got to file a Hawaii state return. You,
2: you bet. You, you, that's exactly right. So you better uh, be really good at TurboTax or hire somebody to help you.
1: Well, a little shameless plug. for, for what?
2: Financial. Oh, I have I don't do taxes anymore. That's that's long gone. I used to. That's how I know all this nauseating stuff.
1: Oh God. I don't even get it. <laughs> what do you think about Target Take Funds to Target wrap up funds. the show?
2: Okay, I'll give you my answer and then you can clean it up. All right. So target date funds are like retirement account uh, funds where you depends upon your age or, or depends upon when you're gonna retire, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years from now. And the funds in the that particular investment are invested based upon you getting close to your retirement date. The closer you get to retirement date, then the close then it'll be more fixed income safety. I, I generally, Joe, I would say I like them in general, but there's a couple problems. Some of them are expensive, so you gotta look at the internal costs of those. Some of them are cheaper, so so be aware of that. And and the other thing, too, is it's going to put you in an average with everyone else, which may or may not be the best thing for you to do, but it certainly is probably better than doing absolutely nothing.
1: I think targeting funds are great for um, investors that have uh, maybe $100,000 or less. Um, I think it's a good plan to get a diversified portfolio. The and, portfolio and real then, easy. Yeah. yeah, real easy, right? It's just chugging. There you go, right? Put, put, plug and chug? Is that what yeah, the terminology sure. is Yeah, I think called? so. All right. So yeah, so then it's diversified. And then as you get closer to your retirement date, then it gets a little bit more conservative. But however, you've got to be very careful with some of these because in most cases, right, they're for unsophisticated investors because they don't want to deal with anything. They just want something simple, right? So how do most people select their investments, Al? What do they look for?
2: Well, they look for the rate of return from yes, the last year.
1: They look at past performance. Past performance means nothing of future results, right? We all heard that before, disclaimer. So, But different target date funds have different allocations. And so let's say you go to Vanguard, you go to Fidelity, you go to T. Rowe Price, you go to whatever, right? There's hundreds of them. And then you look at, all right, well, which one is the best target date fund? And most people are gonna pick the one with the highest return and they're they're going to equate that to the best one. However, that's a lot more risk. They might have 80% in stocks while maybe another target date fund with the same target date has 55% in stocks. That doesn't mean the one with 80% is better because it has a higher return. It's just taking on a heck of a lot more risk. And then if you're taking on more risk, Right? What is that going to do to the overall portfolio when markets go down? As you're taking distributions from the portfolio as well, I hate target date funds because it's like, all right, well, if I'm going to sell a share of that mutual fund, I'm selling stocks and bonds. There's no way to separate. There's no way to separate it. There's no way to really calculate the risk that you, that that you want to take in the portfolio. There's no way of segregating the risk in a sense of creating the income. There's no tax efficiency whatsoever in the overall accounts. So, you know, that's kind of my two cents with them. I think there's it's. A, it's a good start, but be bar, beware, I guess. That's kind of the whole theme of, you know, full circle, right? Okay, got it. So hopefully that helps. Uh, go to our website, purefinancial.com if you want more information, if you want more help, if you have a question, go to our website, ask an advisor. Um, we're here for you to answer anything that you got. Um, so we'll see you again next week.
0: So to recap today's show, you need a strategy for retirement withdrawals. You need a strategy for claiming your Social Security. And you need a strategy for investing in real estate. Special thanks to our guest, Andrew, from the Listen Money Matters podcast, who explained why, if you can save 50 to 80% of your income each year, you already have a great strategy for retiring early. Listen next week for more Your Money, Your Wealth, presented by Pure Financial Advisors, a registered investment advisor. This show does not intend to provide personalized investment advice through this broadcast and does not represent that the securities or services discussed are suitable for any investor. Investors are advised not to rely on any information contained in the broadcast in the process of making a full and informed investment decision. Your Money, Your Wealth opening song, Town Gold by Carl James Pestka is licensed under a Creative Commons license.